sometimes you just have to wonder about me, don't you? Because here on the program today, we have everything from elk to Bucky's to an encounter with God, wrestling with him all night and living to tell about it. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is. It's the program where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I've had some adventures over the last couple of weeks, and I want to fill you in a little bit on those. And we've been studying this week something about a man named Jacob. And we want to get into that a little bit, particularly one of the most interesting events in his life. And yet we probably don't understand it very well. Maybe we'll understand it a little bit better after we spend some time together. And maybe, just maybe, it will encourage us to not give up on God or ourselves or on circumstances quite so quickly. So let's get started, shall we? Now, the the whole elk thing and and other things, including hot air balloons, that, that'll come a little later. I hope we have time for it, but I've been thinking, and so I made a list of 10 things I've been thinking about, and, and I guess you'd have to say I've been experiencing. So I thought maybe we'd talk about some of those just for fun, take a little breather maybe after we've wrestled with this scripture, wrestled with Jacob wrestling with God. So let's plunge in there first and not get too distracted by that, but we want to start with this phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard those three names put together and then connected to God, but you might have. We sometimes refer to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we throw around those phrases sometimes just a little bit too casually. We probably don't help people understand them like we should. And, and I want to connect a few things today and tell the story a little bit about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and lead us up to this encounter that Jacob had with God at the ford of a river. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those are the three what we might say fathers of Christian faith or Jewish faith. Now, I say Christian faith because being a Christian really flows from what we usually think of as the Jewish faith. And so we claim Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same as anybody else does. And they were the fathers of the relationship with God that became people of the covenant and becomes the people of God today, the church, Christians, a lot of ways we describe that. And I want to make sure that we understand a little bit of the connections of that, because if we just kind of toss that around and, and assume everybody knows, maybe we don't really understand, and maybe we need to connect that a little bit, because it will help our understanding a little bit. So when we refer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we are referring to the God generally people think of the God of the Old Testament. Well, that's not the complete story. Yes, those men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are mentioned in the Old Testament, and their story is told in the Old Testament. I, I get that. But really, when they, we talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're going back to the God of the Bible. Sometimes, in some context, I will see God referred to as the one God, or sometimes the one true God. We often refer to him as Yahweh. We often think of him as coming in the person of Jesus, and that's true. So when we talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're talking about 
God, the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, represented and revealed to us in many ways through the scriptures and in person in the life and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus. So it's really quite remarkable. I'm not sure where the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came from, but it's a good one because it takes us back to the beginning of this idea of a relationship with God. So you might have heard people say that Christianity is a relationship, and they'll, they fall back on this when trying to describe Christianity more than any other description. And there's some good reason for that. And I know sometimes people hyper-spiritualize that, so I, I get that, and that makes some of us a little nervous, me included. But really, this idea of a relationship and of, and of Christian faith being characterized by a relationship is, is accurate. Because when we go back and we talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it starts with Abraham. And Abraham lived in the ancient Near East, and he heard God's call to, to leave his home and his family and travel to a place that God would show him. And Abraham did. In the course of all these things that he learned about God, and, and Genesis tells us about the most important encounter that Abraham had with God. God had spoken to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham liked that idea. And one day God comes along and says, Abraham, it's time to formalize this. We're going to form a covenant. So God invites Abraham to be his covenant partner. And we see that, I believe it's in Genesis 15. You can go back and read about that ceremony there. And it gives us a glimpse into what's going on. It doesn't tell us everything about covenant. We know some things about covenant from history and from discovering how it was lived out in ancient times and in more recent times. God comes along and says to Abraham, I want to be your covenant partner. It's a very significant relationship because it, it bound one person to another. And generally, covenants were created between heads of households between men in those days. It was really quite remarkable that the one God would come along and say to Abraham, I want to be your covenant partner. And so because Abraham and God entered into this covenant, then that's where we begin with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham began this relationship with God, this covenant partnership, I like to say, with God there in the early pages of the book of Genesis. Well, being a covenant partner involved a certain amount of ceremony, and that's recreated there, and there's some fascinating connections with that. We're not going to get into all of that, but suffice it to say that now, well, it's, 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 it's a little bit hilarious to say it became all for one and one for all. In a sense, that's what the covenant was. We think about that with the three musketeers, I guess. I don't want to, I don't want to minimize this remarkable agreement that God had with Abraham and Abraham had with God. In other words, God says to Abraham, I'm all in for you. And Abraham says to God, and I'm all in for you. And so it was this blending of households, blending of lives, this covenant partnership, so that if Abraham had an enemy, that enemy became an enemy of God. And if God had an enemy, that enemy became an enemy of Abraham. They were there to have each other's backs, for example. That's part of the covenant. 
And a significant part of the promise that God made to Abraham was that he would have a son, and from that son would develop a great people, a great nation. So many people that they were more numerous than the stars of the sky or the sands of the sea. An uncountable host is the way it's described, really, in the scriptures. Not that God couldn't count them. I'm not limiting God here. But for us to understand, we need to realize there were just so many heirs of Abraham that God promised. And Abraham, it says in the scriptures, believed God, and God credited that belief as righteousness. So they started this covenant partnership. A lot of things happened. A lot of interesting and unusual and kind of sometimes striking things in the story of Abraham. But it comes down to that God moved at a point in time to fulfill that promise to Abraham. And he sent messengers to Abraham and said, this time next year, your your wife Sarah is going to have a baby. Well, that was pretty shocking to Abraham and to Sarah because they were well past the age for childbearing. And in fact, Sarah, the scripture said, laughed when she heard that. And, and yet, that was the promise of God. And the messengers that spoke to Abraham didn't back down. It's going to happen. You wait and see. Well, sure enough, God kept his promise, and Sarah did have a son. Well, in the meantime, they got a little anxious, and, you know, they did something they shouldn't have done. Now, the Bible doesn't come out and with a lot of condemnation of Abraham from that, but we clearly get the idea based upon the way God tells the story and the way we've come to understand what God had in mind as an ideal for people. And so they messed up, Abraham and Sarah, and Abraham ended up having a son by a slave woman, a maid to, to Sarah. They thought they needed to help God out a little bit. I guess there's a lesson there for us. We don't really need to help God. We just need to be faithful to do what God calls us to do. And if God promises he'll take care of things, he really is trustworthy. That's why we call this program Faith Is and we define it as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Well, Abraham and Sarah got ahead of God here. Now, some people say, well, clearly that wasn't the right thing to do, and I'm not arguing that it was the right thing to do. And I don't know that God defended it as the right thing to do. God just dealt with it. Remember, all the way through the story of the Bible, the people involved had the ability to make choices, good choices, and bad choices. The interesting thing about the story that God tells us in the Bible is he doesn't hide their bad choices. And he doesn't necessarily major on them all the time. He'll point some of them out sometimes very plainly, particularly happened with with David and his dalliance outside of his proper relationship with his wife, and that ended tragically on many levels. God does not hide that in spite of the fact that people make bad decisions. And so they made a bad decision, but true to his word, God gave them a son named Isaac. And he grew up and he got a little older and a little older and he wasn't very old until one day God said to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac to me. Well, that's a pretty shocking thing to us. It was pretty shocking to Abraham. Because Abraham knew, Sarah knew, this son Isaac was the child of promise. The child that God had promised to send 
to fulfill the promise of many descendants. Well, Abraham, as the story is told in the Bible without hesitation, takes his son to the mountain that God showed him and prepares to sacrifice him, but God provides the last moment an alternate sacrifice. It teaches us a lesson, teaches Abraham a lesson, that God will provide the sacrifice, which he did, and it points to the provision of Jesus later as the final sacrifice for sin. But this is Isaac. This is the Abraham-Isaac connection of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Isaac gets a wife, and there's a whole other story related to that, but he gets a wife, and he begins to have a family of his own. And his wife, Rebecca, becomes pregnant. And she is pregnant with twins. Now, we don't know that until they're born because they didn't have all that fancy technology then. But we do know this, and you can read this. It's really quite fascinating in Genesis 25. But it describes that um, what we would call Rebecca had a really difficult pregnancy. And and she was, I, it doesn't say this, okay, but I don't think there's too much doubt when you read it that, um, that she is miserable. This was just a very difficult time. And she got to the point of despair, and and she said, if it is to be this way, why do I live? So, you know, you don't say that lightly. And, And God, when she asked God about it, God explained to her what was going on, and he said, there are two nations that are going to be born through you. There are two peoples that are going to be born. She went, he went on to say the, the, um, one will be stronger and one than the other. One will be younger, one will be older. And oddly enough, this is really the thing that we must not skip over. God said the younger will serve the older. Well, that never happened in those days. The laws of inheritance simply said straightforwardly that the older son became the head of the household. But God here says that's not the way it's going to be. Now, we can argue about it, and it's probably a theological issue more than anything, whether God was prescribing this is the way it must be, or whether God was just helping Rebecca understand that this is the way it's going to be, you need to, to prepare for that. There's some interesting conversations we could have about that because of Rebecca's role in future events. But nonetheless, difficult pregnancy, she's carrying twins, She can't imagine how this could be. She despairs to even live through it. And she has this talk with God, and God gives her these assurances. Well, in the course of time, Esau is born first, and Jacob followed him. Esau then was the elder brother. Jacob was the younger brother. And interestingly enough, the Bible says that when Jacob was born, he was gripping the heel of Esau. And that's a clue as to things that are going on. It's almost as though, and, and we don't know this, but it's, it's almost as though they were fighting it out or wrestling w- over who would be born first. And that wrestling match finally ended with Esau being born first and Jacob hanging on to his heel. Okay, we understand that. Now, also we should, at this point, understand that Abraham had Isaac. Isaac is now, and the story of of God's people focuses on Esau being born and Jacob being born, these twin boys. Esau, the name Esau means hairy because 
when Esau was born, he had a lot of red hair, and so they called him Esau to reflect the fact that his his uh, physical features were characterized by quite a lot of hair. Jacob means grasp the heel or supplanter. Well, that reflected what the Bible describes as him being born holding on to the heel of his brother. And it gives us a clue, the way the story is told is intended to give us a clue that Jacob would have a deceitful nature going forward and he would take what was rightly his brothers. He would grasp and take for himself what should have been his brothers. And so he becomes known as this kind of deceitful guy and he earns the title without a doubt. So now we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, So Abraham was the first covenant partner with God and as a result of that all of his tribe was was in covenant with God, and all of the people that followed by birth could then be themselves part of that covenant relationship. So from Abraham, the covenant partnership, the head of the household, the keeper of the covenant, you might say, becomes Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, And now you notice we link those three names together, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so preview, you would have expected Esau to be next because he was the firstborn, but Jacob was. And remember, that's what God said would happen when he spoke to Rebekah, the mother of Esau and Jacob. So this is where we get the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So far, so good? Okay, good. Now it's also... Kind of a side note here, I've mentioned that Esau was, right when he was born, was characterized by a lot of red hair. That was just part of his physical features. By contrast, Jacob was not. He was, in some scripture translations, described Jacob's um, physical nature as being smooth compared to Esau being kind of rough and characterized by the hair. So you could you could definitely tell a difference between the two. Now we should point out here that that didn't make one of them male and one of them female. In this gender ideology age, we sometimes get all scrambled in these things, and don't be scrambled. They just had different physical characteristics, but they were both clearly male. And we shouldn't go down that road for any reason when God makes clear that he created people male and female, and in this case, Esau and Jacob were men. They just had different physical characteristics. Men today have different physical characteristics. It doesn't make some of them men and some of them not men. So I just want to point that out so we don't allow ourselves to be confused on these kinds of things. Well, these two guys, Jacob and Esau, they grow up and they realize and they would have known, it would not have been a secret, that Esau should have been the one to inherit the blessing, the head of the household. But, interestingly enough, Rebekah and Jacob kind of worked together to get Jacob promoted to the head, of the head of the line, you could say. So, one time, Jacob has prepared a meal. Esau comes in from being out hunting out in the fields, and he's very hungry. And, and so, Jacob says to him, Uh, I'll give you some of what I've prepared if you will sell me your birthright, which means 
Jacob then becomes first in line, and Esau gives up the advantages of being the firstborn, and, and the responsibilities for sure, too. And he does that easily and readily, and so now the story is told, Jacob becomes first in line. But they had one other problem, they had to find a way for Jacob to get the blessing from his father. And so he and his mother worked that out, particularly his mother has a key role in that. Esau goes off another day, another time, out hunting and getting uh, game to prepare a meal for his father so he could have the blessing. But while he's gone, Jacob slips in with a meal that is prepared and pretends to be Esau. A lot more to this story than that, but that's enough to give you the idea. And as a result of that trickery, that deceitfulness, Jacob becomes the heir of the blessing, and Isaac blesses him as the firstborn. And so now Jacob has officially traded places with the inheritance structure with Esau. Well, Esau comes back, discovers what's happened. He's enraged. Jacob flees for his life and goes to his mother's family quite a ways north and a little bit east of where they were and lives for a time where he acquires a couple of wives, children, flocks, all kinds of things. There's a certain amount of um, gamesmanship or deceitfulness goes on between the father of Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. But eventually, Jacob gathers quite a lot of wealth for himself. He leaves home after he manages to steal the blessing that belonged to Esau. He leaves home with only what he could carry. He had nothing. He ends up spending quite a number of years there with Laban, the father of his wives, and he acquires a lot of wealth in, in flocks. I mean, a lot. And so the time comes that he's tired of being there with Laban because Laban hasn't always treated him right, and he decides it's time to go home and to return to his homeland. Now remember, this was also the homeland that God had promised his people. So it wasn't really a surprise that he would go. But he does. He leaves. And there's a whole lot more to this story, too, because they set out and there's problems with, with the father of Jacob's two wives, and he comes chasing after them, and that's all resolved. And then finally, they leave, and they're on their own, and they head south back to the land of promise where God had given them so they could live and enjoy the inheritance. Well, all the while, there's a certain amount of dread that's going on with Jacob because now he's going to come back and he will have to face his brother Esau. And remember, he fled for his life, so we don't really have any idea how this is going to go. Will it go well? Will it go easily? When he meets Esau, Jacob doesn't know, and he's just really not sure, but he prepares for it. He gets down to a, a ford in a river called Jabok. It's, a, it's at a place we would call Wadi Zerqua today. Z-E-R-Q-U-A, Wadi Zerqua. It's a place we can identify. Now, the exact location of this ford in the river, we don't know. But we do know it's approximately 20 miles north of the Dead Sea. And this water flows west into the Jordan River. So he's on the east side of the Jordan River. And he's preparing to go into the promised land and preparing to meet Esau. And in 
in, in looking at this story, and in just a moment we're going to read that, it's interesting that it points out that he's specifically in this location at the ford that he would cross to go into the land. Uh, and, and we, you know, we think about bridges. We don't think about fords. We think about bridges or state lines, things like that, or city limits, things like that. But in, in a sense, and you'll kind of pick this up as you, as you think about the story, this ford represents a gate into the land that Jacob is returning to. It represents a definite transition for Jacob, and we'll see that quite clearly. And, and I think that's why the story points us to this place to remind us this is a specific place of important transitions. So let's read just a few verses from Genesis chapter 32. It's, it's the part of the story we want to focus on here. And we're going to read some of the verses down, not the whole section here, but down through verse 32. I guess we'll read all of those to finish the chapter. And I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version Update Edition. The same night he, that refers to Jacob, got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So I said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please, tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him, and he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket, because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. So there's quite the interesting story. Now, to set up the scene of what really we need to focus on, we get the idea that Jacob arrives at the ford and he starts sending people across. Now he's really afraid that Esau might kill him and his family. And so he develops a strategy to divide his, his flock so that they wouldn't all be destroyed. He develops a strategy of sending several waves of gifts, flocks to his brother Esau both to appease his anger and to demonstrate that he's not coming back to claim any of Esau's wealth. Remember, Jacob was supposed to inherit the largest share from his father, two-thirds. He wasn't there to inherit it. Esau has the wealth from that. And Jacob is coming back to say, nope, I'm back, but I'm not here to take anything that is yours. I have plenty on my own. God has blessed me. So he sends this wave after wave of gifts to Esau, so Esau will understand that he's not there to claim something that Esau owns. He also takes his family across, and we don't quite understand why it was important for him to take his family across. We don't think there was any sense that he was putting them out there in, in harm's way or in danger of any kind. It seems that the importance of that 
was that it sets up that Jacob now will spend the night alone with God. And this is where we get to the part of the story that, that involves a really significant transition for Jacob. Now, just to remind ourselves, Jacob was a rather, how should you say, unsavory character. He stole the birthright. Even when he was born, it looked like he was there to, to get what his, it wasn't his, to try anyway. He runs for his life because he knows what he's done, and he did it with the help of his mother. Goes to this distant land, lives with his mother's family. We didn't get into this part of the story, but he's at first cheated out of his first choice for a wife. And then because of that deception, he has to stay there longer. But in the process of all of that, God does bless him and he develops considerable wealth along with two wives and children. And again, the multiple wives in the Old Testament is not something that God said, this is the ideal. People made choices, and they weren't always the ones God would have had them make. But he tells the truth about what they did, so we'll understand and we'll learn from their experience. And so now he's on his way back to see Esau, and he comes to this river, the ford of the river. He crosses it easily. It's not a hard river to cross. It's not big like the Ohio River, something like that, not like the Mississippi, not like the Caloosahatchee here where I live. It's a river you can cross quite easily, quite readily. And it's the crossing of that river and the events that precede it that really give us insight into what God is up to here. We're going to get into that when we get back. And I guess we'll take some time to get at those top 10 things I've been thinking about because I had a little fun with that. Maybe you can enjoy it. We'll take a little break from the heavy Bible study, but then we'll conclude with what is God teaching us from this time with Jacob there spending all night with God. We'll be right back. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Well, the OUTLOUD truth was the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.news was an idea, a movement, 
a place where folks would feel comfortable speaking the truth without being censored or canceled. The First Amendment is alive and well. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. to Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. Yep, we have a real church here with real people. We have all the ups and downs of lots of other churches. One thing that we are determined to be and to do is to be faithful to God and to do what He calls us to do. We are going to stay true to the Bible and teach the Bible, and, and I just want to encourage you to find a church that has that kind of commitment. Anymore, I'm, and I'm surprised I've come to this conclusion, frankly. I'm less concerned with the label and more concerned with biblical faithfulness. You know, we Christians and we churches sometimes have disagreements, but if we'll find ourselves with a company of people that are determined to be biblically faithful, it'll avoid a lot of problems. So find that church, will you? Don't hesitate to do that. Find that church. And if you want to come to our church, come on down. We'd be glad to have you here. Well, I said I might get back to 10 things I think, and, and uh, yeah, so I think I'll, I'll do that a little bit. We'll get back to the story and wrap this up with Jacob, because it's really significant what happens here. It's really kind of an odd story, but so very significant, and it teaches us some important things as well. But 10 things I think, well, the first thing I think is I'm mostly back in gear from having been gone for a couple of weeks, made a trip up through... Georgia, drove up through Georgia and Tennessee and Indiana into Michigan, spent some time there with my daughter and, and her family, drove down to Ohio and spent some time right outside Columbus with my sister and her family. And then I drove back down through Kentucky and Tennessee and North Carolina and Georgia back to Florida. I like to drive, so I enjoyed that very much. Uh, people think I'm crazy sometimes, but uh, that's, that's me. The problem is, like any time you've been away, you got to get back in it, and it takes a little ramping up, and I still think I'm ramping up, but I think I'm back in gear. Well, one of the things that I experienced as I went along, and the second thing I think is that I want to tell you I like to drive, but the third thing is that along the way, I got to stop at Bucky's, and I know some of you are going to think that's silly, and some of you are going to say, what? What is a Bucky's? Well, if you ever get a chance, you're on a trip, Stop at Bucky's. It's a, it's a stop for filling up your car with gas and for buying snacks or lunch or whatever like you've never seen. And uh, I just enjoyed doing that. I kind of planned my stops where I knew there was a Bucky's. And uh, I actually got to visit the, one of the newest Bucky's. It might be the newest one. And it's the largest one they've ever built. And they are huge, more than 100 gas pumps. So anyway, I enjoyed that, that was Bucky's. And, and one of the things I enjoyed was when we were in Michigan, my daughter and her husband are involved with the Hot Air Jubilee in Jackson, Michigan. We got to go see that Hot Air Jubilee, and that was really quite cool to see all those balloons and see them fly, see them um, inflate. I mean, it's, it's, it's a sight like you can't imagine to watch them do that. Or I should say it's not cool, it's hot, because... You can't imagine how hot the burners are. If you've not ever been close to a balloon like that, 
they put out a lot of heat there way more and they explained i can't remember it was it was many times more heat than a furnace would put out to warm your house in the winter but that was kind of a cool experience and and number five i think not only was that a cool experience but i saw something that it almost never happens now on saturday morning they had a particular exercise they do different things for these balloon jubilees and events that they have and this one was they have a, a field that's marked off where they have kind of the main base for all the balloons and in that field they made a target area for the balloons and and the idea this morning was to launch the balloon from some distance away and then fly over and see which balloon pilot could get there i think it was a sandbag in the center of that circle and whoever got closest they got points things like that i don't really know how the points worked but here's what was cool you could watch those balloons and and most of them were pretty much on target some of them came in really low and got close i thought they were going to get really close to it but then all of a sudden they threw their sandbag out and went back up i don't know why that was i couldn't tell i'm not a balloon pilot and then they flew on down because they were supposed to to hit another target down range a little bit from where we were well as we watched one balloon came in and came in from kind of from the left or from the right to left as we were watching at it toward the circle and it came in slowly they generally drift slowly they control their drift i think by by both the air they put in the balloon and by the the altitude and the winds at whatever altitude it is and this one came drifting in and it came in farther and it got a little lower and a little lower and lower and now they can't touch down or they lose points but this pilot managed to get his balloon right at the center of the circle right at the center of the bullseye and he leaned out and dropped that sandbag right dead square on the center and i i could not imagine that because others i mean there were a few that missed it widely they didn't even come close they didn't have any chance to even throw their sandbag out but like nothing you've ever seen and and like nothing i may ever see again he was right absolutely on that bullseye it's really quite remarkable he was so excited you could tell that we weren't that far from him but he was just absolutely ecstatic he he turned on his burner and his balloon gained altitude and he went on down range but that that was the most remarkable thing that's probably for him maybe for all of us watching a once in a lifetime thing that you'd see because it's so unusual for it to happen well that's five things i think um the sixth thing I think is I think Michigan blueberries have to be about the best blueberries anyway. Now, I know some people in New York State might object to that and say, no, theirs are better. And I've had some from New York State, and they're excellent. Uh, there are not too many blueberries that aren't excellent. I just like blueberries. But, but we were able to get some blueberries from Michigan. They uh, were in season in July, and they're excellent. If you ever get a chance to go and get some off the blueberry farm, I would recommend it highly. I traveled down in the... Seventh thing I think is that United Dairy Farmers is still a wonderful treat. I had United Dairy Farmers when I was a kid. That was the ice cream shop that we went to when we had something special. And I will always remember my favorite ice cream was chocolate chip. And so, yes, going through Ohio, I found United Dairy Farmers and I had some chocolate chip ice cream. Well, I kept traveling down. And the eighth thing that I think was that seeing the elk in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park is absolutely one of the treats 
that I enjoy going through. I drive out of my way to drive through the Great Smoky Mountains, and I saw 30 elk, uh, give or take one or two. It could have been a few more, could have been one or two less. It was a little hard to count them because many of them were laying down in the tall grass. But it was absolutely stunning. Some years ago, they told me, the park people told me that that they have a herd of about 60. Now, if that herd is still about 60, that was half the herd that we that we managed to see, me and the other people that were driving through. It was really, really so exciting. If you get a chance to go down, see the elk, do it. Uh, number nine that I think, I think there's nothing like an audio book to listen to when you drive a long distance. And I enjoyed listening to audio books. If you've never tried listening to audio books, I want to recommend it. People say, I don't have time to read. Well, you can listen to books when you're doing a lot of other chores. And this time I did a lot of writing uh, in the car, driving. And audiobooks are really a great way to, to benefit from passing that time. And then the 10th thing I think is my family has a, a lot of things to be grateful for. But one of them is, is the heritage of faith that we've had. And, and my sister arranged for us to visit my Aunt Carol, my favorite Aunt Carol, as she is quick to remind us. She's my only Aunt Carol, so she has to be my favorite Aunt Carol. She's about 90, I guess I shouldn't tell you how old she is, but she is just a gem. She and my Uncle Gene, Uncle Gene was my mother's brother, were missionaries in Africa, and they first went to Africa in 1952, two years before I was born. And they, shortly, days after they arrived in Africa, they were trekking back into the bush to take the gospel to the people in Africa. Missionary work in those days was absolutely different than it is now, and the courage they had. She said, well, she didn't know if she had courage, but I'm sure she had courage. She said she was sure every time she, she took a step, a snake was going to get her. Well, they didn't. And she said, my uncle, he just knew what to do and how to do it. And they just went, God clearly had his hand on them. And I thought it was a great thing to, to hear that story a little bit again. I can't imagine being, she was like, I think 22 years old when they went to Africa and, and went back in the bush. Quite an adventure, quite a lot of faith or absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Well, anyway, there's 10 things to kind of catch up on what I've been doing, but let's go back to Jacob. Here he is, Jacob wrestling with God. Now, interesting, there's a little wordplay in the Hebrew that we can learn about from those people who are Hebrew experts, but the, the word wrestled in Hebrew sounds like the word Jacob. So it's not a surprise that there's a little wordplay going on here. Jacob, at this point, wrestling with God is 97 years old. Now, keep that in mind. Maybe I should say 97 years young. Uh, not so much distant from my aunt's age, but I'm not going to tell you her age. She's not reluctant to, but I'm reluctant to. But here's Jacob, 97 years old, wrestling with God. He spends all night alone with God, wrestling with God. But the Bible says, and you heard me read it a little bit ago, that God did not prevail. Now, I read that and I thought, what in the world? What does it mean that God did not prevail? I mean, God is God, isn't he? And God created everything we know and who knows what he created that we don't know about, can never know about. And yet it says that God did not prevail. Now, when you read the story, and you heard me read the story, it refers to God as the man. 
but we clearly know it was God. So I'm just jumping ahead. It's, it's clearly revealed at the end of the story that it was God that he wrestled with. So he's wrestling with God, but he does not prevail. Now, curiously, that's, that's the way the Bible explains it. But we also know that, that God won the wrestling match with a touch. I mean, he, he touched Jacob and, and his hip went out of joint and God was strong enough to do that with a touch. So clearly, Jacob didn't win. But what does it mean when he said that God did not prevail? Well, I've thought about that a lot, and I've noticed that a lot of the things I looked at didn't really, didn't really focus on that question. But I got to thinking, well, it didn't mean that Jacob won the wrestling match. That's not the point. It, it Clearly, God was the stronger, and that's demonstrated in a couple of ways in the story. So I got to thinking, well, what could God mean when he says that God did not prevail? And then later, later it, it says as, uh, let me give you the verse of that. Um, it says of Jacob that he had striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. That's verse 28. So there it describes Jacob as having prevailed. Now, how could Jacob prevail and God not prevail? And yet, clearly, God is the stronger one because he, he injured Jacob with a touch. Well, how, how do we make sense of that? And, and I guess the conclusion I've come to on that, and I, and I think it's consistent with the text, although I, I have to tell you, I didn't find other people focusing on this very much. But it seems to me that what is going on here is that Jacob would not quit in his wrestling with God. And he continued to contend with God. He would not stop. And it made me think, what about us? This is a huge lesson, I think, for us. It seemed that God appreciated that Jacob would not quit. In fact, you heard me read it. Jacob said, I'm not going to let you go till you give me a blessing. Jacob would not stop. Now, something's going on here. How many of us, how many of us can think of times in our lives that we've been disappointed with what God did and we want to just quit and say, if you're going to do that, I'm out of here. How many people use that as an excuse to go their own way? Now, Jacob had not lived an exemplary life. He had been a manipulator, that's clear. But he wouldn't quit in his wrestling with God, and God didn't quit on Jacob either. So it's very interesting that, that the scriptures say that God did not prevail, and yet Jacob is described as prevailing with God and people. Now, Jacob said, I won't let you go, said to God, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Now, Jacob had already received the blessing of birthright from his father. We know that from earlier. And God had blessed his work while he lived with Laban because he was very wealthy. Many, many flocks. I mean, animals, huge number of animals. So many that he could clearly give many generous gifts to Esau to demonstrate that he wasn't there to take Esau's wealth and to demonstrate that he wanted to he wanted to make amends for what he had done. And yet, here we see him wrestling with God, and, and Jacob was saying to God, 
I won't stop contending with you until you show me divine favor, until you give me a blessing. Now, maybe Jacob was thinking, it doesn't say this, we could, we could think about this. Maybe Jacob was thinking, well, I do need a blessing from God because I'm about to meet Esau and I don't know how that's going to turn out. Well, maybe. Um, but maybe there was more to it than that. Maybe there was more to it than that. Maybe there was something so significant going on that we need to, to, to think about that. And in, we need to think about it in terms of our own wrestling with God. I, I don't know if you wrestle with God. Maybe you are right now. But, you know, I don't think God shies away from our challenges and from our wrestling. I just don't think he does. Now, I think he's not pleased when we speak ill of him and when we accuse him and things like that. But when we wrestle with it and try to make sense of things and when we, we have honest conversations with God, that that's kind of sounds like wrestling with God to me. Now, this is portrayed in the story as a physical wrestling match. I get that. But I think there's more going on to that. I'm not quite like some people who want to say, well, it's an example of praying. Well, I'm not so sure of that. I, I think rather it was it was more uh, straight up, I, I don't know what's going on here, God. God's saying to Jacob, yeah, I know what's going on with you. You need to get this right. And they're hashing it out a little bit. And it's described as a wrestling match. And I want to encourage you that go ahead and have, have it out with God, but be honest about it. If all you're going to do is whine and complain and try to find excuses to ignore God, well, okay, God, God sees through that. But if you're determined to fight your way through life's difficulties and misunderstandings and disappointments, then fight on. So God does bless Jacob here, and, and he changes his name, and something significant is going on here in all of this. So Jacob starts out being a supplanter, grasping his brother's heel. And now he has his name changed from Jacob to Israel. What's going on here? Well, first thing, clearly we see that God is demonstrating that he's God and Jacob isn't. God is the one who has authority over Jacob and, and now Israel. God, by changing Jacob's name, is demonstrating that authority. In the same way, you may remember back when Abraham entered into covenant with God, Abraham's name became Abraham. Earlier, it was Abram, but his name became Abraham after the covenant ceremony. So that's why we generally think of him as Abraham. It reflects the relationship with God. And now Jacob is becoming Israel, not Jacob. Now, that's interesting. We do say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We do refer to them that way. But it's very important to understand that from this point on, Jacob is Israel. And Israel is the name of God's people. And so now, Jacob, renamed Israel, moves from being a supplanter to the legitimate heir of the covenant and the chosen leader of God's people. This all is taking place here because you read the rest of the story and the people of God continue through the line of Jacob. And everything changes during this wrestling match here at the ford. So Israel, who was Jacob, now is the legitimate heir of the covenant 
and he leads God's chosen people, and from him develop the tribes of Israel. Now, it's interesting also to note here that Israel, the name Israel, means God fights. So here, here they have this wrestling match, and God and Jacob are wrestling all night, and suddenly God says, okay, your name is now Israel, which means God fights. And that's kind of interesting because God did fight him. But there's a little bit more to that because you work on that name a little bit further and you discover that it talks about or could be, could be understood to mean that Israel is one who struggles with God and with people and overcomes. Hmm. Overcomes. Well, it does say, God says of Jacob that he did prevail. And, and isn't it important for us to keep wrestling with God until we overcome our doubts, our disappointments, misunderstandings. I hear people every now and then complain about how something bad happened to them in a church. Well, join the club. There's a lot of us have had bad things happen as a result of being around a church. God's people are not perfect in every way. And dare I say, neither are you and I. So we don't know how much we've contributed to that. But anyway, Jacob continues, and he becomes known as one who struggled with God and with people and overcame. And he did struggle with people through his life. We've seen some of those he did with Laban, and he continues on. And then we should remind ourselves that one touch from God showed Jacob how much he needed God. Jacob had to learn that he couldn't manage on his own, that he needed God. It wasn't by his own wits that he prevailed. He needed God to lead him. And it reminds us that everything that we do is by the grace of God. Everything. God gives us gifts, and we can help people and the people of God with the grace gifts God gives us. It's not anything that we did. It's because God has chosen to be kind to us and give us that gift. We need to realize that everything we have is a gift from God. You read the story of Jacob and you'll discover that everything he had was a gift from God because of the way it became his and the things that happened. It's just remarkable. We don't have time to go into all that, but go back and read it. It's just really quite, you kind of go, wow, what's going on here? Well, God was gracious to Jacob. And it reminds us that our hopes and dreams find fulfillment in the providence and by the kindness of God. You know, we might have disappointments. We shouldn't focus on those. We need to realize that, that God is with us and God takes the long view. Now, you and I may not be able to see what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the next day. We surely can't. But we need to have that kind of confidence in God that he takes the long view. And no matter how it seems to us, God will take care of things. He'll take care of us. He'll take care of the people we care about. He will manage to bring about his kingdom come and his will be done. We pray that way. And we need to take that same view and recognize that Jacob, for all of his life, having so many, so many things that he should have done differently, now comes to the point that something profoundly changes. It's more than a name change. Jacob, now Israel, would never be the same again. You know, there's an old song that said, I've just seen Jesus, and I'll never be the same again. Well, that's what God wants to do for you. 
for us, for all of us. You know, he knows how we've been. And he wants us to have a new identity. Jacob had a new identity with a new name. But even more than that, he became the heir of the covenant, the father of the nation, following Abraham and Isaac. And now Jacob became the three fathers of this nation. And God wants to give us a new identity. He doesn't want us to identify in the ways we have in the past. He wants us to identify as we are his. We use the name Christian. Or sometimes people say Christ follower. All kinds of descriptions. But it all comes down to we are intended to be. And we must find our identity as the faithful people of God. Nothing else. You know, I find a little identity in being a pastor. Fine. But I won't be a pastor forever, but I will be a follower of his forever. Whatever identity you have, you won't be forever. But you will be a follower of his forever if you follow faithfully. And when we have absolute confidence in the faithfulness of God, it makes following faithfully much more likely, and certainly it reminds us that it's possible. So how about you come to a crossing a gate in your life where you're going to enter into a whole new era of life where you have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God and God touches you and changes you and you will never be the same again. I pray that for you today. And I pray that even now as you turn to God that he will touch you and you will be so different from now on, you'll be amazed. See you next week. I'm Pastor Rick.